Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red. Hey. In, a, in a very sweaty environment. Oh man. And it's, it's pretty unbearable. <laughs> yeah, I'm almost soaked through with sweat already, and we haven't even started the podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the electricity is starting to get back to normal right now. However, we're we're not back to normal right now. And for instance, my power, I didn't have any generator or power for the past hour and a half. It just came back as we were starting. So ah, Lebanon in the summer. Um, we've got a lot to talk about. It's been a few weeks since, uh, uh, since we were last on the air um, and a lot has happened since then. We're not gonna go through everything this week, but we do want to go over a couple of news items. And then we want to get to the main topic today, which is, Riyad Salemi, the man of the hour, right? Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, uh, we've uh, dug up some interesting things. I, I wouldn't say dug up because it's all right there. But in the course of our research, I think we found out some very interesting things that neither one of us knew beforehand. Mm. All right, very quickly to go through the news, uh, we are seeing a major spike in coronavirus cases right now. As of Saturday, there were 1,854 active cases. Now, this is way above the normal number of active cases. If you'll remember, there were around 500 active cases on average uh, in Lebanon from April through the first week of July, actually. But since then, the number has uh, you know more than trebled. And so in the past week alone, we have seen 807 new cases. That was as of Saturday. We're recording this on Sunday afternoon. So we have not yet seen the numbers for today. You know, prior to July, a bad week would have been 150 new cases. So 800 new cases in, a, in the past week is quite a lot. And then also just on Saturday alone, there were 175 new cases. That was a record. That was more than, you know, what a bad week would have been a couple of months ago. And the majority of the new cases also crucially are local. So for example, of those 175 new cases that they discovered on Saturday, 144 of them were local. And so we are definitely in the community spread phase of things. Testing is still up, but the increase in detected cases isn't due just to more testing. There actually is a real spike in Corona that we're looking at right now. I um, mean, it's quite worrying because a hospital capacity, there are really only, I've seen two figures for the number of ICU beds Lebanon has, somewhere around 260 and also 430, also with ventilators. This is a rather low number, but luckily right now we're much lower than that. There are 144 people in the hospital right now due to Corona. Uh, 31 of them are in, in intensive care. Uh, so, okay, only 31, but we've got a capacity of at least like 260 or so. The problem is when this number increases, it might increase exponentially. And so the worry is that we could actually even though the, the ICU capacity seems a lot larger than our, our current caseload for intensive cases, it actually could be overwhelmed quite quickly if we see a rapid increase in the number of hospitalizations mm -hmm. uh, and in the need for uh, intensive care. Petra Khouri, uh, an advisor to the prime minister, shared a slide from the Ministry of Public Health showing that the ICU capacity could be reached as early as August 14th. And Faras Abiyad, who heads the COVID response at uh, Rafiq Hariri Governmental Hospital in Beirut, said, I believe we are on the brink of losing control. So basically, this is the second wave we were warned about, and it's happening in a quite dramatic way. 100%. Yeah. Very quickly want to note that <laughs> this has also touched uh, politicians. Jojo uh, Ace, who is an MP uh, for Zahle, for the Lebanese forces, came out the other day saying he has corona. Um, apparently, he got it from an official at the uh, foreign ministry. And he uh, since then, he's also been meeting with like Samir Jaja, the head of the Lebanese forces, and Nabi Berri, uh, you know, the Speaker of Parliament, the head of the AMAL movement. Immediately, Berri canceled parliamentary activity for Monday and Tuesday and urged MPs to get tested. Berri himself got tested. Uh, Al-Jadid reported today that he tested negative, and Samir Jaja, his press office, said that uh, Jaja had tested negative as well. And we also expect uh, new restrictions to be announced today, but we are not quite sure what those will be yet. Those will be announced this afternoon, after right now when we're recording, but uh, before this is published at midnight. Yeah, wear a mask. That's a good idea. Yeah. Also, over the past few weeks, we have seen a very major push from the Maronite patriarch, uh, Bashar al-Rai, 
in favor of neutrality for Lebanon in international affairs. And, and this, is, this is a call that's, you know, it sort of echoes dissociation policy, stuff like that, that's been around in the, in, uh, in the uh, political discourse uh, for Since years. Since 1958. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it, it's, it's agreed upon like, uh, you know, March 14th forces and Christian forces as well, you know, are in favor of this generally. Um, even Jerome Basile said he basically supported it. You know, we are with neutrality, he said, um, that will help Lebanon maintain its unity and defend it from attacks from Israel. But he says that this all also requires an internal consensus inside Lebanon. It, it requires a national dialogue. Otherwise, it's going to cause problems internally. And what he's referring to here quite clearly is opposition from Hezbollah and Amal, who believe that such neutrality would be applied to the Israeli-Arab conflict. Rai, for his part, says it would not lead to any sort of opening up to Israel or anything. But but this is one of those things. That it, it's this perennial discussion, you know, that is Lebanon, you know, part of the West, part of the East. Should we be neutral? How neutral? And in what respects? This is, this is a conversation, like you say, that's been going on basically since Lebanon's independence. Yeah, and, and, and the context for this push by Rai is basically... That Lebanon in this uh, is in a position today where forces allied with the Syrian regime and the Iranian regime, so basically the axis of um, resistance, whatever it's called, they are more powerful than the, than their opponents who are more aligned with the West. And still, Lebanon needs the West quite desperately to get money, uh, especially during this crisis and in general for the for the survivability of its economy. So we're in this position where we have to be close to or at least on good terms with everyone. And um, uh, the, the other way would be literally like a, a catastrophe if you think about it from a, a political economy kind of point of view, right? If you just uh, give up on the connections with the West and no one is in that position anyway. But I think this push is specifically aimed at, you know, ensuring that from now on, even if Hezbollah and Syria has a lot of leverage and Lebanese power in the Lebanese government, this doesn't mean that Lebanon kind of aligns with the axis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very quickly, the lira is still fluctuating. I do not know what the real value of the lira is right now. Do you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the dollar was seven thousand five hundred. If you're selling dollars yesterday, my friend sold dollars for that much. So, and and I bought something that was priced at seven thousand three hundred. So it's, I think, shops are being able to buy some dollars around that rate, just over seven thousand. But in other areas outside of Beirut. Obviously, the price sometimes lags behind. When it's falling in Beirut, it stays, you know, um, higher in uh, in other places. So, for example, in Saida, it would be around eight thousand or eight thousand five hundred in Shuf as well, etc. Yeah, and uh, this has just been fluctuating wildly, and I mean wildly, uh, sort of between seven thousand five hundred and nine thousand or so lira to the U.S. dollar over the past few weeks. It seems to me as though you know. People seem to be following these apps that have zero transparency. We don't know where they're actually getting their figures from. There is a lot of suspicion right now that some of these apps are basically pulling these numbers from like sort of a couple of big exchanges who are then able to manipulate the price based on the money they think that they can make. Uh, there's that concern. And and then also, like you, you'll you notice, uh, I noticed a couple of weeks ago, after one of the fluctuations, it had gone, the, the price had gone down below 9,000 uh, pretty significantly. And then it started to reach back to 9,000. And right when it reached 9,000, I, I was on one of these telegram groups where you buy and sell and everything. Right when it reached 9,000, you just saw a massive flood of people who had been holding onto their dollars who were like, I'm willing to sell at 9,000. Mm-hmm. And so part of me thinks that there, a, a part of the psychology is still at 9,000, or at least it was a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Now, I don't really know where it is. I, I'm not entirely sure where it should be. And I really, really, really wonder about manipulation. And we should always keep in mind two things here. First is that there are very different actors within the black market. You have the big, big shots who sell tens of thousands of dollars and buy tens of thousands of dollars. And you have the small actors, you know, the emerging uh, young people who just got into the business because it makes sense during this time. 
and they sell three, four hundred dollars or buy three hundred, four hundred dollars at the time. And these get influenced by by the apps and by the news so much, right? Because uh, if you're not such an experienced exchange shop, you don't really know the dynamics. You, if you're not such a smart person in this business specifically, you might be, get involved in in in, in a dynamic that actually makes you buying dollars at higher prices uh, whenever you see that there's a rise or whatever. So this is one thing to keep in mind. Another thing is that we're witnessing quite a stable time, relatively speaking, for the dollar after it had been increasing by almost, you know, 500 liters a day or something like that. And this is a relatively stable time, but it's the time where most Lebanese diaspora members come to Lebanon. So Lebanese immigrants who work abroad usually come during July and August or uh, end of July is like, I think the most, uh, the, the, the time of the year where we have most immigrants coming here, spending money, bringing dollars. And these days they brought more cash dollars than usual because uh, they want transfer them through the normal means so this means that you know we were probably seeing a kind of a pause for the for the depreciation of the lira uh, by the end of the summer there are a lot of predictions by i just hear them every now and then by experts etc that by the end of the summer the trajectory of you know depreciation will accelerate again and the dollar might get to you know over ten thousand again and keep increasing are there really that many expats coming visiting this summer though I don't know. I don't know the numbers, yeah. but um, now you have Eid Al-Adha. And I mean, I know plenty of people who came in the last two weeks. So I think that's quite an anecdotal evidence. Yeah. You know. yeah. But yeah, the um, I, I mean, we are still in the midst of we, we may have hit pause, like you say, a little bit. But uh, for a lot of people, no, that pause is, doesn't really mean a whole lot because the economy continues to deteriorate at really an unprecedented pace. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw this very sharply in the education sector with uh, the American University of, of Beirut and uh, their medical center laying off some 850 people in one fell swoop. Yeah, it was uh, quite a tragic say, uh, day, to be honest. And the scene itself was not nice at all. Um, AB seems to have called the military to be uh, kind of supporting it uh, on the day of, uh, you know, of the sacking of these people, of these workers. So the army was there and as if it was ready to repress any attempts of fighting back beyond, uh, like, uh, by the workers. So it was a very kind of ugly manifestation of this alliance between uh, employers and the military you know, at these sensitive moments of economic crisis against the workers' interests. Um, but also a lot of reports about the way workers were told on that specific day that they were sacked was quite uh, indignifying. You know, it was not, it was a bit humiliating to, uh, some people had their accounts uh, shut down so they couldn't log onto their computers anymore. Other people were told by their department head by phone, like, sorry, this is your last day. Overall, it was quite a despicable way. And Fadli Khoury, the, the, the head of the AU, of AUB, the president said, we could have managed that uh, week better, which is a very, like, it's an understatement of really how bad AUB managed it and where it situated itself and, you know, the dynamic of, of social forces, you know, between siding with, with the oppressors and siding with the, with the oppressed or the workers. Yeah, and, and this really is notable as well, just because AUB is insanely rich right and so you have this yeah they they are in a very difficult financial time right now but at the same time it would be like harvard laying off people in the middle of an economic crisis that's that's sort of the i mean obviously aub is not harvard well it's the harvard of like west beirut or something right uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like that if, if like harvard this is super rich institution with all these endowments and everything were to just lay off a bunch of people yeah not only a rich institution also one that pays very high salaries to its top management you know you have this managerial class in aub that gets really large amounts of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. And if you just look at the salaries of the workers who were sacked, as a lot of people on social media did uh, on that day, if you look at their total salaries compared to the salaries of the top managerial class of one of them, you know, the head of ABMC or Fadl Khoury, etc., you find that ABMC conscious clearly just made the decision to uh, cut the livelihood of hundreds of workers uh, during the worst time for that um, because they can't find other jobs in this market instead of cutting some of the earnings of its managerial class more or less and these are really really rich people that have a lot of benefits apart from the salary so 
it's in my opinion it's totally unfair and it's really despicable that AB took this choice because it's ultimately a choice related to morals and to social justice right and they just are on the totally wrong side yeah um and and there have also been concerns voiced in the past couple of weeks about other institutions of higher education in the country as well obviously you know this you know continuing economic collapse is uh, a high priority or rhetorically a high priority for a lot of higher ups, a lot of politicians, as well as the international community. And we saw the French foreign minister come to town this past week, Jean-Yves Le Durian. Did I say that relatively okay, Nizar? <laughs> Do you want to say it? No comment. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, he was in town this past week and he said that progress was not in encouraging. He said that uh, you know serious, incredible measures still uh, needed to happen, uh, that they hadn't happened yet. Uh, and he, he pleaded once again, help us to help you, which is uh, you know him repeating something that he had said in Paris a few weeks back. Now, nothing really came of this visit uh, that we know of, other than France did offer some token support for, I, I believe, private French schools. And Le Durin also claimed that France is working on a comprehensive plan to help Lebanon through this crisis. Uh, he said that the IMF help was also essential, but the IMF talks are still stalled. Uh, it, they And honestly, they don't look like they will come to fruition, certainly not anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, uh, you know, part of this, I think, is France is sort of the prime mover still in Lebanon, at least amongst the Western powers. Uh, it would be, it would look, you know, gauche for the United States to sort of like step in in front or for the UK, for instance, to step in in front. You, you know, there's a certain deference that they give to France owing to its, you know, imperial past and the mandate era here in uh, Lebanon. But certainly France wants to at very least appear like they are doing everything that they can to help Lebanon right now, even though nothing's really happening. Yeah. We did have good news, however. There will be a forensic audit after all. After Ghazi Wazni, the finance minister who is loyal to Nabi Berri, outlawed it or, or <laughs> said, like, no, it will not happen, they seem to have changed their minds. Uh, the government picked a firm named Alvarez and Marcel. Hezbollah and Amal ministers cast blank ballots in the, in the cabinet meeting, saying that all the firms had some sort of connection to Israel. It, it is good, though, that we, we've gotten this far. For me, though, I still have a lot of questions. Most importantly, will this company get the documents that it needs and the access it needs uh, in order to conduct a full, thorough audit? And then also, what's going to happen with the results? Are we going to get to see any of them as the public or not? Yeah, to me, the big question is, uh, is this a deal or is this a real audit? And this is like, I don't know enough about the credibility of this uh, specific company. Uh, it clearly, when you read about it, it's not like it's a company that is so specialized in this in the forensic audit specifically. It's more of a general company that works in corporate, you know, turnarounds and reforms, etc. But they work on things uh, called they have a division called disputes and investigations, and they have worked on similar things in the past. But the question is not whether they have the skills to do it is whether they will be allowed to do it and whether they are going into this contract as a serious audit firm because we can't have you know high trust of, of anyone who works with the central bank in Lebanon after what we've seen. And speaking of the central bank of Lebanon and its governor, segueing slightly into uh, our main topic, but we've got a couple of news items though about this. Yeah, one big news item was uh, a judge actually issuing a verdict to impose a protective freezing of some of the assets of Riyad Salami, the central bank governor, based on a charge that Salami had undermined the financial standing of the state. So it's not a big deal, right? Let's not make it uh, into bigger than what it is. The assets first are not do not include the money he has in bank accounts. They include real estate properties, uh, some personal possessions like furniture inside of this house he has in Rabi, and potentially his personal cars. But also Salami can lift the freeze through bail. This is not a freezing that was imposed after a verdict. This is a protective freezing because there's a case against Salami and the first course, court session will be uh, later this year in October. And this um, lawsuit that was filed by a bunch of activist lawyers is actually like the real, the real story. That one is the one we need to keep a closer eye on 
because the verdict in that case would be whether Salami has mismanaged the state finances or not, and this would have uh, much bigger repercussions than, you know, confiscating his furniture. Right, right. Also, Salami made big news uh, in the FT. Chloe Cornish had a great scoop, a really big scoop that BDL, well, we know BDL first off has been sort of playing around with this other assets line on its balance sheet, right? And so it, it's become more and more obvious that this line, other assets, is a, an accounting balancing item, basic, basically meaning it doesn't really exist. It's just there to make BDL seem like it's still afloat because they've got a whole bunch of liabilities, a whole lot of money that BDL owes mm -hmm. to like banks and stuff. Well, in order to balance their books, BDL needs something on their asset side to say, oh, well, we've got enough, you know, we have enough assets to cover all of our liabilities. Um, and this line, this other assets line has been suspect for a very, very long time. And we got a little bit closer to understanding it with Chloe Cornish's piece uh, this past week in the FT. Specifically, there is one part of that line that is supposedly from Senioridge on financial stability, whose value the governor himself determines. However he determines it, that's the value. And this value, $6 billion. And to explain it uh, without jargon, this is f future profits that will be made from the process of printing money. So. Um, they're counting these profits as assets, although they haven't been made yet. It's not profits of the past. It's estimating profits from printing money in the future, which is controversial itself. But also, the number itself seems to be not based on any um, proper accounting mechanism. It's just a number that Riyad Salemi decides uh, as deemed appropriate by him. Not, not according to some accounting standard. Not according to any sort of like, I don't know, IFRS or anything like that. No, this is just like... If he says it's worth this amount of money, it's worth that amount of money, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And the experts that Chloe um, interviewed in her piece said things like, this is too bizarre for words. Uh, many of these assets are inventions. I've never heard that the governor can make up a number, etc. So uh, if this is true, then Riyad Salime has uh, basically faked numbers in order to pretend that BDL is not losing as much money as it did. Anyway, I guess... I guess with this whole story happening of, you know, Riyad Salemi being under scrutiny, um, the forensic audit, uh, the issue with the boosting assets, uh, the judge verdict, etc. It's good to take a step back. And this is why I've tried to to make this last part of the episode kind of a profile of Riyad Salemi, right? To talk about who this man is and some sides of him that are not so talked about usually. Just the basics first, you know, he's a 70-year-old uh, man. He was born in 1950. His birthday was actually... 10 days ago or so, it was on the 17th. So, so that would be not Friday that just passed, but the Friday before that. Alex, exactly. happy birthday, Riyadh. Happy birthday. I'm and sure he's listening. Yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, he comes from a family of businessmen. According to the publicly available information, he's, his father had a hotel in Brumana. He went to this uh, school uh, called College Notre Dame of Shumhur, which... So for to, to a lot of AB students, uh, I would say, is known for sending French-speaking obnoxious kids <laughs> and very posh kids to AB. Uh, sorry, former colleagues. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just repeating stereotypes that I've heard. You know, it's not my opinion. Really? It sounds like you had like a bad experience once. <laughs> <laughs> once? <laughs> anyway, uh, Riyadh uh, graduated from, uh, from Jamhur. He went to AUB where he studied economics. And then he worked uh, for like 20 years. Uh, at Merrill Lynch, big company that is a division of Bank of America, but, and it specialized in investment and wealth uh, management. And he worked um, in the Beirut office and the Paris office of the company. In 1985, he became the vice president of the company. Um, so he, basically, he, he, he was a rising star uh, in the field of managing investments. A vice president, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. obviously. Um, so in 1993, having built a good reputation, working with a lot of businessmen, uh, reportedly many uh, rich Arab businessmen 
and wealthy people. He was contacted by Rafiq Hariri. According to the Lebanese Army magazine profile, which was a very, very favorable profile, it was basically just a, a piece praising Riyad Salem and calling him like literally the, the, the best man you've ever heard of. There's um, a lot of those pieces out there. A lot. Incredible amounts of pieces praising Riyad Salem. We'll talk about that in a second. Anyway, this piece says that Hariri actually called up, called up uh, Salemi, Rafiq Hariri, late uh, Prime Minister, called up Salemi and uh, told him, would you manage some of my fan finances? Obviously, Hariri was a very rich guy. And he had known from probably his rich Arab friends that Salami is a good guy to call for investments. He was very fascinated by him. And then he suggested him to be the next governor of the Lebanese Central Bank. And just one thing for context that I'd like to mention here is that, you know, both Hariri and Salami kind of grew in in parallel to the growth of, of Arab capital in Gulf countries, right? Hariri was a guy who made all of his wealth, uh, initial wealth in uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, based on his connections with the royal family. Uh, reportedly, Salami also arose uh, as a star of investment management by managing uh, rich Arabs' money. So you, you can say the same about a lot of Lebanese politicians, right? Hassan Faris or Adnan Khassar or um, Hamad Safadi, etc. A lot of Lebanese uh, officials and politicians rose after the civil war had shined uh, as, a, as a new bourgeoisie that was really close to Arab Gulf capital. So Salami went from being one of Rafiq Hariri's personal bankers, basically, to coming to the central bank in August 1993. Now, what had happened when Hariri came to power was it, it had come on the back of this massive devaluation of the lira that had gone from something like 900 lira to the dollar in 1992 up to almost 3,000, right? This mm -hmm. is where that 3,000 number gets bandied around. I've seen like 2850 at least uh, has been cited. But basically immediately after, you know, they had the elections in 92, uh, there was an agreement to bring in Rafiq Hariri as prime minister. And basically as soon as Hariri came in, that, you know, the lira went back to almost what it was before. Uh, and it was at, in as of the end of July, uh, 1993, the lira was at 1729 to the dollar, not too far off of the 1500 that we know today. And so what, what actually surprised me in going back and looking at this is that I had thought that Riyad Salemi was responsible for bringing the lira from like 2850 down to 1500. Mm -hmm. But then uh, in, in, in looking at the timeline again in prep for this show, I realized, oh, no, no. By the time he got into office, the, the lira was already pretty close to 1500. And then it just under his tenure from August 1993 until the lira was fixed, the peg was introduced uh, at the end of 1997, we just saw the lira float down ever so gradually from that 1729 to the 1500 to 1515 uh, band that we had for 20 years. Yep. And the other thing to note there is that a lot of people say that the devaluation that happened in 1992 that caused the downfall of the, the Omar Karami government and the uh, uh, Hariri to be ushered in a year later, that uh, happened due to speculation from the banks. Just as there there are reports that the the exact same happened, it was bank speculation that had driven the the devaluation uh, in the early '80s and the one also in the late '80s and '87. And so this is this is a major problem. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people are were saying, well, you know, it's the banks who are driving these kinds of things. And then, but then, weirdly, as soon as Hariri gets into office, this stops, and Hariri himself finds a way to. Uh, sort of bring the banks in through in into the system so it was uh, no longer in their interest to mount these speculative attacks because all of a sudden there was this new thing, government debt that they were heavily invested in and so they didn't want actually the value of the lira to go down as much. Yeah, exactly. And Riyad Salami coming in was basically, it was Hadid's guy, but uh, he was also... Um, someone from you know the financial sector is not he didn't have a public sector background they had the private sector background and he was and after being appointed governor in 1993 he went on to have his uh, term renewed four times after that so that's why he's still uh, governor today his term was renewed in 1999 2005 2011 and 2017 right and when different governments were in power different political affiliations it was not like only hariri's people who were renewing for him this was, you know, a diverse bunch of of, uh, of cabinets and political formations 
uh, that brought him back to the same position. But but throughout the, all of these years, the main um, the main credibility source of credibility or legitimacy for Yasser Salemi has been that he has been able to keep the lira uh, stable and meaning the exchange rate stable, right? And we're talking about many crises that Lebanon passed through all uh, since 1993. We're talking about 2005, the assassination of Hariri. 2006, we had um, basically an Israeli aggression and uh, and the war. In 2008, like a mini civil war happened with the May 7 events and the financial crisis happened worldwide. And Lebanon was one of the probably least impacted countries when you see the uh, the, uh, the manifestations of this finan- global financial crisis in the country. You notice that it's really negligible compared to other countries. And so Riyad Salem has, has accumulated throughout these years a lot of uh, legitimacy as, you know, the man who keeps it stable, the man who, who protects the lira, etc. And this has contributed to uh, him having a very glorified image in public discourse and media. He's been seen and portrayed as this hero technocrat, you know, who saves us from crisis. And Hisham Safiyuddin, a friend of the show, has made a good point, which is that Riyad Salemi is, is basically, his credibility and his popularity was uh, in contrast to the stereotype of the Lebanese politician who is less competent, who is uh, the, who are sectarian, etc. So he was like being the technocratic person, um, the person who has uh, the com- the skills to to manage the sector is responsible of, etc. Gave him more and more credibility as the polit- politics and the political practice was decaying, and also because BDL was not only playing a passive role, you know, just managing inflation and basic uh, monetary policy. BDL was stepping in sometimes when it was quite unusual for a central bank to be stepping in. Yeah, uh, you know, it was really interesting a few years back. I think it was around 2015 or 2016. You noticed that the Beirut Marathon, right? This big marathon that happens, you know, big for Beirut at the very least, uh, big for Lebanon, big marathon that happens every year. Um, it's usually sponsored by Blombank. But weirdly, it was sponsored for a couple of years, I think, if memory serves right, by BDL, right? Um, and at the time, you know, I thought, oh, something must have gone terribly wrong with Blom <laughs> and BDL is stepping in. And I'm sure I wasn't the only one who thought this. But, you know, regardless, when there are big events that people go to and they see that BDL is a sponsor for that, well, first off, the central, central banks usually don't sponsor things like this. It's a very weird thing, you know, keeping a marathon going or something like that. But <laughs> for, I mean, from a just the public's the public's point of view you know you you look around you you see all of the other state institutions failing you see private institutions not really stepping up you see you know economic hardship and stuff like that starting to mount and bdl this actually competent organization seemingly is stepping in and and helping certain things survive that might not survive otherwise Exactly. And when you talk about housing, when you talk about startups and SMEs, small, medium uh, enterprises, um, BDL was taking a, a role, claiming a role that is usually that of the executive authority of the government. You know, uh, it was giving facilities to all of these different uh, fields where it was basically as if uh, there was no one to act but the central bank. And we should be fair here that, you know, if governments had done a more proactive role, the central bank wouldn't be the economic policy maker in Lebanon. So it was basically like um, throwing a lot of things on the back of Riyad Salemi throughout these years. You know, de- deal with this, give facilities to this or that, subsidies to this or that, right. uh, without having a solid plan from the gov- from the executive authority or a, a parliament working effectively to monitor the budgets and push for certain lines and directions in the budget. Right, right because essentially the politicians couldn't agree on things. And so they just left it to Salemi to just sort of like generally, you know, move into housing, help that out, move into tech startups, help them out, that sort of a thing. Exactly. And uh, and because of how big of a role he's had and because he's managed to keep the exchange rate stable until very recently, he's been acknowledged internationally by a lot of private uh, entities as, you know, one of the... As one of the you know notable central bankers globally, he's received plenty of awards and annotations and he's been on so many lists, etc. So... This also has, you know, accumulated all the other things to make Salemi sort of the man who is not doubted or criticized so much by Lebanese media at all or Arab media. Like we didn't used to see any critical coverage of Salemi by almost anyone until 
really quite recently, a couple of years back. I remember right yeah. like after we started the podcast. I remember like when when things started to look like Lebanon is is, is going into uh, it's falling off the cliff financially soon. Then people started pointing out at Riyadh having been probably doing some wrong policies, etc. And because of all of these. He's, he was, at so many points, he was, uh, his name was thrown in very seriously as a potential candidate for president. You know, first of all, he's a Maronite man. He's then also, he's he's had a very, very high position. He has a lot of credibility. He has a lot of political connections, etc. And he's always portrayed as, you know, if, if politicians can't agree on a name, then get either the army commander or the central bank governor because they represent the state rather than politicians and militias, etc. So this also yeah. was, I think, a factor. Okay, so all of this was based, though, on this idea of Salame because we didn't really know what was going on, right? Like there, there was it, it's it's not like we were present in these meetings where Salame was making decisions or or doing anything. No, he was just like this bureaucrat, you know, this golden bureaucrat who just kept his head down and got the work done, which seemed really, really great. But we did get a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, when WikiLeaks released the U.S. State Department uh, diplomatic cables, right? And uh, there is a treasure trove of information in those, especially, I, I know probably a lot of people are not huge fans of Jeffrey Feldman, but I have to say his reports are quite detailed, quite precise, well-written and entertaining and very entertaining. <laughs> yeah <laughs> he was a very yeah. good like writer he's just sarcastic sometimes. right and, and usually what these things uh these diplomatic cables are is just like feldman would have a meeting with some politician and this politician would gossip some tell him what's up and then he would write up you know the details of that meeting Exactly. Right. Exactly. So one of the meetings that has one of the greatest, I think, uh, cables uh, available was from a meeting with uh, Jihad Azour, who is now the IMF regional chief. Um, but uh, back then he was a finance minister and another minister called Sami Haddad and another meeting with Mohammed Shatah, who was later assassinated. And uh, Shatah is also a former finance minister. Yeah, exactly. And, and they are all within the future camp, uh, more or less. And uh, the meeting with Jihad Asawur and Haddad, which Feldman writes about very descriptively, um, was after uh, Rafiq Hariri had been assassinated and uh, Lahou, President Lahoud's extended term was ending. Uh, Lahoud, for those who don't know, was a pro-Syrian regime president that had a major political conflict with Rafiq Hariri ahead of Hariri's assassination. Anyway, the meeting was basically a meeting where Haddad and Az'ur were telling uh, Feltman, uh, be careful of Riyad Salemi. We shouldn't get Riyad Salemi to be president because Riyad Salemi's name was, was uh, going around back then. And they said uh, that he was actually the favorite candidate of the Syrian regime and of Hezbollah. And Ooh. that's why, you know, the Americans should be wary of allowing him to become president. And it was a very serious candidacy by then, if uh, not candidacy, but like it was a very serious potential, uh, according to Feltman. But also another uh, in another paragraph, another section, Feltman writes about how Salemi, according to reports that he got, was going to Europe and then disappearing for a few hours or one day, and and meanwhile allegedly going to Damascus to meet with the Syrian regime with Syrian regime officials, officials because he didn't want to go straight from Lebanon because that would be tracked by the Americans and everyone else. So. What uh, what Feldman was saying is that Riyad Salim seems to be on in very good on very good terms with the Syrian regime, and he's been meeting with them uh, frequently. And that uh, Hezbollah people also uh, speak of him highly, according to you know the UN ambassador, uh, special coordinator in Lebanon back then. So the pro Senura, because Senura was like a leader after Hariri's assassination, Rafiq Hariri's assassination. Obviously, he was prime minister, etc. Uh, so Sunuras people were very wary of bringing in Salemi specifically because Salemi represented this, uh, the guy who potentially would flip after becoming president and become like a Syrian regime tool in Lebanon. And and the Americans were also concerned, according to the these cables, just based on Salemi's own personal relationships, and they were afraid that they could be used against him by the Syrian regime. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, anyway, you can read the WikiLeaks files for for more info. It's, it's really a fun read, so uh, I would recommend it. But this, all of this, like Salami being, you know, the Syrian regime and Hezbollah's guy, is very weird to hear now. It's very, it's very surprising because what we know and what you hear of today is that Salami is the guy that's always being targeted by Hezbollah and all of these media, international and Arab mostly and local 
were running these headlines saying Hezbollah wants to get rid of Salami, etc. during the last few months uh, of of, uh, of protests and Thawrat. Uh, right, Salami was brought in by Rafiq Kariri. Now he's Saad's guy. There's no daylight. But, well, no. Clearly, the history does not bear this theory out. Definitely not. I mean, if you look at the history, he's the establishment's guy. He's not March 14. He's not Hariri's guy specifically only. Salami's last term renewal happened in 2017 under Aoun presidency and a national unity cabinet where FPM and uh, its allies controlled, you know, a huge section of the cabinet and they could have, you know, stopped any decision whatsoever. And they didn't stop the renewal of Salami. Obviously, there was some political back and forth, but it wouldn't, wasn't, didn't qualify to actually replacing Salami by another guy, although he is old and although ha- they had pr- criticized him in the past. When Salami was t- targeted with a lot of popular anger, a lot of protests and, you know, public shaming from Diab, basically, Hassan Diab, the current uh, PM, March 8th P- uh, forces did not go ahead and use this ultimate opportunity to kind of replace him with another person and they um they although they kind of as if they leaked some intentions to media and they created this buzz around it eventually nothing happened and Birri clearly said you know uh, we're not getting rid of salami we're keeping him there so. so they held back at least for now exactly so it's it's really that he seems to be the key guy in the establishment and someone that the establishment relies on and one of one one former high level official Describe Salami to me as the don of the mafia. If the mas- if the establishment <laughs> is a mafia, then he said um, uh, Salami would be the don, or you know, the the guy keeping them uh, together and keeping order uh, of business. And it, it might be due to what Salami knows about you know the, ac- the wealth accumulated by these politicians and what they have done with it and uh, how they have coordinated you know some financial policies and their own political gain. He knows a lot of stuff, for sure. Absolutely. This, this definitely is one of the main um, reasons, that, uh, possible reasons uh, for sticking to him. But it's the, I think the rudest and the clearest manifestation is when uh, Ghazi Wazni, the current finance minister, said, you know, the political force that backs me or I'm affiliated with rejects a forensic audit of the of the central bank. Why would someone ever say that? You know, Salemi must be really close yeah. and... I think, you know, talking about him as separate from the political establishment in Lebanon would be a great mistake. Yeah, absolutely. But I think this all connects, you know, back to something that has become uh, taken on increasing importance since uh, the October 17th revolution. And that is this insistence on transparency, greater transparency and anti-corruption that, you know, the, the Lebanese people are sick and tired and fed up with a bunch of, you know, politicians making deals in back rooms. And that seems to be precisely what Riyad Salami was a part of. You know, he, it, like like I mentioned before, he wasn't, you know, he, he keeps his head down, you know, and uh, like a good bureaucrat should. But on the other hand, we don't see this transparency on all of his decisions and on on how he runs things and how he decides things. There hasn't been any of that. And that's quite troubling, especially as we learn more and more of the utter insanity that has been going on at BDL over the past five years or so, and maybe longer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just looking at his performance and his behavior since October 17 gives us an idea of 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 how transparent, uh, how transparent uh, this man is and his institution, right? Salemi was not at all transparent in terms of the numbers, the, the foreign exchange numbers. When we needed the most, he was just throwing numbers without substantive uh, support for them. And he was, you know, contradicting what a lot of experts and companies were saying, you know, and he didn't feel the need to actually, uh, you know, uh, be very transparent and very clear because he had all of these years, he had been, you know, uh, praised and, you know, talked about as this hero, a technocrat who doesn't do anything wrong. So it's not surprising that um, he doesn't understand this shock and this shift suddenly. Uh, but anyway, he has been, you know, not accepting any responsibility for bad policies, right? Because Salemi is, uh, the central bank is the entity that legitimized most of the debt that happened in Lebanon and 
they it's, it's the entity that oversees banks and it has so Did much all the financial engineering exactly so like so plenty of decisions were literally coming from or passing through Salam's office yeah and he has to claim some responsibility he didn't he said you know neither for the BDL losses nor for the the behavior of the banks nor for the accumulated debts on the state he blamed everything on the politicians and the MPs and the governments and he didn't want to take any of that and have to blame which is I think not at all either competent or responsible at first blush that sounds very anti-establishment of this establishment figure yeah yeah this, but this is one thing about Salem. He can say whatever he wants but what's important is what he does and what he does seems to be very good to the establishment so whatever exactly. he says anyway he, exactly. he's been making like all of these statements like oh they want a haircut a haircut so dangerous while people are actually receiving the haircut already middle middle and class middle class and poor people are already seeing the haircut on their deposits through decisions made by Salemi himself in relation to withdrawing dollars from uh and, and lira uh, and these decisions that all have also harmed like exacerbated the problem of lira depreciation itself first of all people were losing some of their money and then they were getting this money and going and buy dollars again uh, going back into the same cycle so it's not that you know he's not he's he's been slightly less transparent than he should or that you know he hasn't had the best policies he's made some bad policies he's allowed some extreme accumulation of debt interest interest rates and and public debt that doesn't uh, that doesn't make sense based on any standards and he has made some uh, decisions himself, like financial engineering decisions that accumulated great losses, and he doesn't want to claim any responsibility. And when the crisis happened, when you know uprising begins on October 17, and the banks decide to literally just impose arbitrary control measures that um, that don't, that you know are not based on any law whatsoever. Riyad Salim is like, no, 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 that's not my responsibility. That's not my jurisdiction. I can't do anything without the parliament intervening. And then suddenly, a few months through, after people were, had been already, you know, devastated by the bank's decision and the arbitrary decisions of the banks, and while the banks were like just transferring tons of money for their rich friends, and the central bank knows all of this data, right? While Riyad Salemi has seen all of this, his first intervention is something like, yeah, let's allow this many dollars to be withdrawn uh, in, in lira under a rate that doesn't make any sense, you know, it's neither the market rate or nor the official rate. And the interventions that he actually did were too late and were not the right ones. So, like this guy has 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 not a mixed legacy. He has been, you know, <laughs> he has been um, uh, his management style and his actual decisions and the content of them have been very controversial. And it's it's really fascinating that he's still in his position today, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and speaking very quickly just on that responsibility, him taking responsibility. Uh, well, there were certain things that he was responsible for very clearly, you know, the way that banks actually operate. He is ultimately responsible uh, for a very large part of that. And has he been on depositor sides forcing the banks to uh, live up to their legal obligations? Absolutely not. He's just stepped back, been very quiet on while banks have imposed all of these insane illegal restrictions. Uh, and basically, basically, he is abdicated his role it seems uh in, in in many ways of just watching over the financial sector keeping it in check um ensuring that it it continues because right now lebanon doesn't have a real financial sector mm -hmm. it, it does not exist try to take a check to a bank and see if exactly. you can actually cash it you cannot you cannot at least it, it it's a process that takes several days usually it it uh you know there is no financial sector to speak of anymore in lebanon and Riyad, but Riyad Salame still is, you know, not taking any sort of responsibility for that. Yeah, and and uh, it just like it's uh, in general. I think to wrap up, it's um, it's clear that you know this guy is not like one bad apple. This uh, this guy has a big role in maintaining the because we, we're talking about maintaining the the capacity of of political authorities throughout these decades to you know survive to um, to overcome crisis you know when he did the financial engineering one of the times he did financial engineering procedures it was when hariri was quote unquote forced to allegedly forced to resign by 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 Mohammed bin salman this is how supposedly he was able to serve the save the financial the, the state by you know swapping uh, doing the swaps but this was at the cost of accumulating debts and losses and at many times when we look at 
how, for example, he's been credited for handling, as we said, the, the financial eight, the, the 2008 financial crisis and protecting the lira. But then when we see how he did it was through giving very high interest rates, partially through giving very high interest rates on lira accounts. So people would bring in their dollars and switch them to lira for high interest rates. And this is why he, and these interest rates have turned into what? They've turned into public debt. Eventually that has to be paid from public money. So Salami is not someone who has been- To a massive been... hole in BDL's uh, balance sheet, yeah. Exactly. And so Salami, to say that Salami, for example, is someone who has been uh, watching from outside, watching the corruption and allowing it is a real understatement. And it's not fair at all. Salami has been- you know, a major part and parcel of this establishment and without him or someone playing his role, it's not like specifically related to him or her, his personality, but without someone playing this role, uh, the Lebanese establishment wouldn't have been able to continue this far with, you know, yeah. the, the bad economic and financial indicator that, indicators that we've had um, in the last decade or so. Yeah, I, I think it's totally unfair to uh, place all the blame on him. You know, sometimes it seemed a few weeks ago that there was this big debate over like, well, should Riyad Saleme go or should Hassan Diab go? Like, who's worse? Who's the real problem? And it's kind of like, no, this is, the problem is more complicated than that. And all of these people, especially the ones who've been around for a really long time, do have some re responsibility in all of this. Obviously, Riyad Saleme does carry a lot of that responsibility because of his position for how long he's been there, all of this stuff. But uh, yeah, it's it's not one of these things where he alone. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I is. think protesters are sometimes the most eloquent in describing and and expressing these things. You know, kilon yani kilon salame wahad minon. Just simple, exactly. straight to the point, right? This is it. He's one of them. He's part and parcel. He's he has uh, great connections with most of them. They bring him again and again to this position. He could have retired, you know. He, he must have something in this. Oh, he must be kicking himself now. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Uh, he's probably never going to be president again. No, Bad news on no. his birthday, but no, it's not going to happen. So overall, this was Riyad Salemi. Hope this profile was was kind of, you know, uh, told you some some new things because uh, because we don't hear a lot of uh, stories about this person himself and his background. Um, but he's definitely one of the most interesting figures, I think, in post-war Lebanon and the role that he's played and the combination of, you know, the profile of the technocrat and the skilled person and also being someone who is deeply very, rooted in the political establishment. Yeah, very political. Yeah. It's very, very yeah. interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think that's all the time we have for this week. But thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we will try to be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.